everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Well, before I get to today's story, (laughs) we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. I want to give you a heads up about some changes that are coming to Myth in the Mojave. I'm going to be making some improvements. Hopefully, this doesn't immediately make you think that I'm going to be changing the content or anything like that. I'm not. Uh, But I am going to make some changes to my online platform, change the name of this podcast from Myth in the Mojave to Myth Matters, and subsequently change the image and some other things that you longtime listeners are going to have to adjust to along with me. Now, you may say, why are you doing this? Well, the goal here is to improve your listening experience, to make everything about this podcast, the name, the image, the content, and its availability, all a bit better integrated to make it easier for me to offer transcripts in addition to the audio, to make it easier to index programs, because I don't know about you, but the different albums on Bandcamp, it's it's very hard to find another, an old program if you want to find one and check it out. And, uh, And also, I want to change the distribution a little bit in order to broaden the audience for this program. So for all of those reasons and more, I am going to be unpacking Myth in the Mojave and changing its online presence. You probably won't see or hear these changes until May, but if you're like me, you don't like to be surprised, (laughs) especially if you're used to the way something looks. So Consider this to be uh, the first of several times that I will be mentioning this, and it is my sincere hope that all of these changes will increase your enjoyment of this program. So, we have been talking about the underworld, specifically the ancient Greek underworld, And in the last podcast, I shared a story with you about Alcestis, the woman who took her husband's place on the fated day of his death and died in his stead. And one of the messages here, a message that comes with many questions attached, like I think the best messages and insights do, is the strength of love. What can be endured through love? what love may ask of us. And today I want to share another famous Greek myth about love and the underworld called Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus was known as the greatest poet who ever lived with a voice that was so sweet that he charmed even the birds. 
This is a figure with a long, murky, twisty history that predates this story. Orpheus, the figure of Orpheus, was central in another mystery cult, the Orphic Mysteries, which, like others, was concerned with the relationship between life and death. And this particular story of Orpheus and Eurydice may have come into Greek mythology around the 6th century BCE. This story was known to them, but it was particularly popular later on with the Romans, and Ovid told a version of this story in Book 10 of the Metamorphoses, which is my primary source for this telling that I'm about to share with you. Orpheus has subsequently been the subject of many operas and poems, movies, paintings in the centuries since. This is our last podcast in this little series on the underworld because next month is April, which means National Poetry Month here in the United States, and I have plans to introduce you to two of my favorite people and poets here in the high desert, Karen Davidson and Greg Gilbert. So I hope you will tune in to the next couple of podcasts to hear some poetry and conversation with Karen and Greg. I think you'll find both of those programs very interesting. And I realized that this Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice actually sets the tone for our upcoming immersion in poetry. As I mentioned, Orpheus was known as the greatest poet that ever lived. And in the old days, in the very old days that lend shape, of course, to our times, the notions of muse, music, poem, and myth were interchangeable. The essential human stories remembered and put into the fairest of forms, the poetic, shared in the body's rhythms and infused with breath, like song. So friends, here we go with Orpheus and Eurydice. A story is like a river. You can wade into the flow at any point and emerge at another upstream or down. The river of story is different every time you dive in. And who is to say which drop of water is the first or the last? When did this story of Orpheus and Eurydice begin? Was it the day that Orpheus and Eurydice first met? Or maybe the moment Orpheus sang his first song and charmed every being within the sound of his voice. With the invention of the lyre, perhaps, or the birth of Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, whom many say was Orpheus's mother. Orpheus was the most famous poet and musician who ever lived. He was called the father of songs, and it was said that although the god Hermes invented the lyre, Orpheus perfected it. When Orpheus lifted up his voice, flocks of birds flew about over his head, and the fish leaped high from the dark blue sea. His song set the trees and stones in motion. He grew up in Pieria, the land of the muses, and some say that Apollo, the god of music, 
who first put the lyre into human hands, was his teacher. Orpheus was one of the Argonauts who rode with Jason and the other Greek heroes on the fleet ship Argo to the land of Colchis to steal the Golden Fleece. They were successful, but on their way home the men passed near the Sirens. Those man-eating harpies were horrible to look at, but they had silver tongues and sang golden honey melodies. The siren song was bewitching, and no one who heard it could resist coming fatally close. But when the ship Argo approached the sirens, perched on their sharp rocks, Orpheus also sang loudly and more beautifully. His glorious music drowned out the siren's call, and thus Orpheus brought the Argo and its crew through safely. When he returned from this journey, Orpheus settled in Thessaly. There he met the enchanting Eurydice. She was an oak nymph, graceful and slender as a sapling. She had a beautiful face and a lovelier heart. Orpheus loved her deeply, and she was equally enamored of him. They were a very happy couple, without a care or a need in the world. On the day that they were married, Orpheus sang joyful songs to his bride while she danced through the meadows full of flowers. The birds joined in, and the trees bowed down their branches and showered them with sweet fruit. But not long after. Some say that it was on their very wedding day. A lusty satyr, half man, half goat, accosted the beautiful Eurydice. Her love was solely for her husband, and frightened and angry, the young woman ran away through the tall grass. She didn't see the viper until it struck her on her heel. The poison from the bite sped quickly to her heart, and within moments, the lovely Eurydice was dead. Franz found the body in the tall grass. At first, Orpheus did not believe them. He could not believe them. He would not believe them. But they took him to the spot. And when he saw his beloved Eurydice still and cold, he understood that he was now alone. His beloved Eurydice was gone. Orpheus sat down and wept. He lamented and played such sad and mournful songs that the nymphs urged him, at last, to follow her, to go down into the underworld. Appeal to Queen Persephone and her dark lord, they counseled him. Surely your music will melt their hearts. It has completely dissolved ours. Orpheus picked up his lyre. What did he have to lose? In fact, there was a faint glimmer of hope in his heart. He went to a deep cave, a crack in the earth that was known to be one of the ways down. It was a long, long walk down, down into the gloomy realm of the dead. The air was cold and dry 
Nothing stirred. There was no sign of life. Every now and again, perhaps, the flicker of a shadow would be caught out of the corner of his eye. And finally, Orpheus came to the river Styx, the river of hatred, upon which the gods made their most solemn oaths. When Chiron, the ferryman, saw Orpheus, he held up his hand. You may not cross, he said. This is not a ride for the living. Go back to the sunlit world where you belong and wait until our Lord summons you. That day will come soon enough. You can rest assured. Orpheus began to sing. He sang of Eurydice's beauty, her sweetness, and their love. He sang of his grief. As he sang, he got on to the ferry, and Chiron silently pulled them both across the dark waters. The ferryman may have felt a flush of warmth in the cavity that once held his heart. When the ferry reached the fair bank, Cerberus, the three-headed hound of hell, was waiting. It was said that Cerberus wagged his tail in greeting at those meant to arrive on the shadowy shore. He might even nuzzle your bloodless hand. But he was vicious to all interlopers. Cerberus snapped his strong jaws at Orpheus and lashed his tail. But Orpheus's sweet voice could subdue every form of wildness, and it calmed the savage dog. In a few moments, Cerberus lay down and rested his three heavy heads on his paws. Orpheus walked on, plucking a simple melody and humming softly to bolster his courage for what was to come. Phantom forms, the dim images of the dead, came near and shuffled along behind him, listening with their hearts full of yearning. At last, Orpheus came to the shadowy hall, where Hades and his queen Persephone sat on their mighty thrones. Here they gave orders, received offerings, welcomed the new arrivals, and oversaw the final judgment of all souls. When he saw Orpheus, Hades said, Who are you, and how did you get down here? Someone will have hell to pay for this. Orpheus knelt down on trembling legs before the immortal pair. I seek my wife, Eurydice, he said. She stepped upon a viper and was killed in her youth, right after our marriage and long before her rightful time. I love her dearly, and I cannot go on without her. Try as I might. Love has won. Then Orpheus started to sing. He sang about the meadows and the moment he first saw his bride. He sang about her smile and the sweet scent of her hair, fragrant as the flowers that she picked for their table. He sang about his grief, about what it is like to suddenly be alone in a desolate world reduced to mists and shadows, without purpose or meaning or hope or love. Without love. 
the force that makes the world go round. His haunting song filled the great hall and echoed throughout the underworld. Sisyphus sat down on his stone. Tantalos forgot his hunger and thirst. The furies were awestruck, and the judges of the dead wept. Everyone who heard the song was deeply moved. Some say the great Queen Persephone even shed a tear, and that Hades himself had to turn his face away lest he betray the contents of his heart. Orpheus's song was complete, and the last note hung in the air. We all shall take this way, he said. Our final home is here. The great and mighty, the small and pitiful, the virtuous and the evil. This is the end for all that is mortal, for me and for Eurydice. I know this. I know this, great gods. I ask you only this, great Lord and Queen. Lend my dear Eurydice to me for a while longer. Hades was silent. Persephone took his hand and squeezed it ever so slightly. Her eyes locked on the face of Orpheus. Perhaps she could still hear his melody echoing in her heart. You may have your wife, Hades said at last, on one condition. You will go first and she will follow behind. You must not turn around. You must not look back until you are both above ground in the bright light of the sun, or she will fall back into the depths once again for good. At these words, Eurydice emerged from the dark depths of the hall. A frail, floating, ghostly shadow of herself, and Orpheus wept at the sight of her sweet face. The two lovers set off at once, with Orpheus in the lead and the pale Eurydice following behind. Several times he thought he heard her stumble. Their upward path was dark and steep, but he dared not look. The pair trudged along in unbroken silence through the mists. It was a very long ways, and after a while it seemed to Orpheus that he had heard and sensed nothing from the woman following for quite some time. No one, Orpheus knew, returned from the underworld. Hades was not known for his mercy. Was it possible that he had been duped? What if, what if Eurydice, his beloved, was not walking behind him after all? Orpheus thought he could just make out the first glimmers of sunlight ahead. The end of the journey was so near, and yet he could not bear it if he had come all this way alone. Doubt seized his heart and squeezed it, filled it, until he had to turn so slightly just a quick 
glance over his shoulder to be sure. Orpheus, I love you, cried Eurydice, as he reached out to grab her arm, to clasp her to him, but she slipped beyond his grasp into the abyss and was gone. Some say that Orpheus tried to find his way back into the depths again to make another plea, but it was no use. Orpheus lived out the rest of his days with only the memory of Eurydice and a song. And what of Orpheus, bereft and despairing in the sunlit living world? Well, some say he stopped worshiping all gods except the sun, which he called Apollo. And so Dionysus had him ripped apart by his maenades for not honoring his previous patron, Lord Dionysus, connected to the muses, the one who knows how to dissolve all boundaries. Others say that women killed him, again, under the influence of Dionysus, because he eschewed all women. Ovid suggests that Orpheus was the first to transfer his affection to boys. Some say that his lyre and his head, still singing, floated over the waves to the island of Lesbos, where a shrine was built in his honor. The muses, these say, took his lyre to heaven, and they may have taken the fragments of his body and buried them at the base of Mount Olympus, where nightingales sing over his grave. In another account, Orpheus commits suicide. There are many endings, many morals, many questions. The one thread that seems to bind them all is the realization that after his trip to the underworld, Orpheus's song was not as strong as before. Maybe the music he offered the terrible lord and queen of the underworld could not be surpassed, was not able to be repeated. Maybe that took the final burst of energy from a source that was not immortal, infinite. After all, Orpheus had human lungs and a human heart. Perhaps Orpheus traded this for a chance to reverse fate. Perhaps his journey down to the underworld was an act of hubris as much as love, something that would not have been attempted by a wiser man. These are all open questions that I'll leave you to ponder. The clues, my friends, to the most meaningful way into the story right now are found in the moment, the details that stay in your memory and that speak to you. I'd like to read you a couple of poems before closing. These are poems from a collection titled Orpheus and Company, Contemporary Poems on Greek Mythology, edited by Deborah D. Nicola. Orpheus Alone by Mark Strand It was an adventure much could be made of, a walk on the shores of the darkest known river, among the hooded, shoving crowds by steaming rocks and rows of ruined huts half buried in the muck, 
then to the great court with its marble yard, whose emptiness gave him the creeps, and to sit there in the sunken silence of the place and speak of what he had lost, what he still possessed of his loss, and then pulling out all of the stops, describing her eyes, her forehead, where the golden light of evening spread, the curve of her neck, the slope of her shoulders, everything down to her thighs and calves, letting the words come as if lifted from sleep to drive upstream against the water's will where all the condemned and pointless labor, stunned by his voice's cadence, would come to a halt. And even the crazed, disheveled furies, for the first time, would weep. And the suit-filled air would clear just enough for her, the lost bride, to step through the image of herself and be seen in the light. As everyone knows, this was the first great poem, which was followed by days of sitting around in the houses of friends with his head back, his eyes closed, trying to will her return, but finding only himself again and again trapped in the chill of his loss, and finally, without a word, taking off to wander the hills outside of town, where he stayed until he had shaken the image of love and put in its place the world as he wished it would be, urging its shape and measure into speech of such newness that the world was swayed, and trees suddenly appeared in the bare place where he spoke and lifted their limbs and swept the tender grass with the gowns of their shade, and stones, weightless for once, came and set themselves there, and aisles of corn, and slept. The voice of light had come forth from the body of fire, and each thing rose from its depths and shone as it never had. And that was the second great poem, which no one recalls anymore. The third and greatest came into the world as the world out of the unsayable, invisible source of all longing to be. It came as things come that will perish, to be seen or heard a while, like the coating of frost or the movement of wind, and then no more. It came in the middle of sleep, like a door to the infinite, and circled by flame, came again at the moment of waking, and sometimes, remote and small, it came as a vision with trees by a weaving stream, brushing the bank with their violet shade, with somebody's limbs scattered among the matted, mildewed leaves nearby, with his severed head rolling under the waves, breaking the shifting columns of light into a swirl of slivers and flecks, it came in a language untouched by pity, in a poem lavish and dark, where death is reborn and sent into the world as a gift. So the future, with no voice of its own, or hope of ever becoming more than it will be, might mourn. That's Orpheus Alone by Mark Strand. Eurydice Saved by Linda Gregg. 
I am filled with all things seen for the last time. He lays with me gently in the unfamiliar house and kisses me. When he holds my head in his hands and arms, I dream of the real world. I look from the mirror to the light on the floor. I am happy with him, eating bread and coffee. This morning, when I took off my shirt to bathe, I noticed I held it in the air before me for some time. I looked at it without perception. When I let it fall, it did not make a noise. Art, I was thinking, is the imitation of what we called nothing when we lived on the earth. Art, I was thinking, is the imitation of what we called nothing when we lived on the earth. Eurydice saved by Linda Gregg. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the great gift of death after all? If we can remember it, if we can remember that it's coming, knowing that things end is what lends them their value. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave, soon to be called Myth Matters, friends. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you are new to this podcast, I invite you to go to the Myth in the Mojave website or the Facebook page and subscribe so you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new podcast. I am very grateful to all of you who support this program by sharing it with others, and I am doubly grateful to those of you who are members of the community on Bandcamp. If you find something of value in this podcast, I hope you'll consider joining the community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, free downloads of everything new that I create, and you give me the financial resources necessary to make future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.